for most the people that you have ever met that have struggled with an addiction of some sort, none of them really ever believed they were going to become a full-blown addict, right? Well, today's guest has a very similar story. He was at the head of his game, the top of his game, a quarterback in the NFL, but fell victim to addiction. And he's going to be sharing his story, his, his journey through football, where he played in high school, the lessons he learned there, college at BYU, as well as his NFL and CFL journey, and then how addiction took hold of his life for over five years. And when he hit rock bottom, how he was able to come up from that. And he's also going to give us some advice to those who are struggling with addiction right now or might know somebody who is. So you don't want to miss this episode of the Game Time Guru. So what time is it? Game Time This is the Game Time Guru podcast, where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. <clears throat> What's up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. I am your host, Shane Larson. We're kicking off 2022 with an amazing interview. I'm super excited about this one. Um, couldn't be more excited about it, honestly. This is this is how you start the new year with a bang. And um, I'm really, really stoked about this. And if you guys haven't already done so, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome aboard. I appreciate all the listeners from the last five years. We're in 92 different countries. We've had 76, 77,000 downloads right around that area. We're continuing to grow as we bring in weekly content for you guys. So make sure you're subscribed to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts if you guys haven't done so already. It helps the show get out to more people. The goal is in 2022 to reach 100 countries. I would love to have the show into 100 countries, but that doesn't happen unless people share the content. So reviews help with that and sharing the content helps with that. So please do that for me. Now, today, very special episode. Um, I've got to announce this guy. He's former NFL quarterback, professional quarterback. He played at BYU as well. Well-known quarterback in the BYU space too. And there's a funny story behind that as well. But uh, I'll get to that later. The man has a lot of stories from sports and then other struggles that he had gone through in his life. And we are going to have him open up about some of those things to help the audience understand, you know, the struggles that athletes can go through because they are human beings, as well as how you can overcome those things and continue to work on yourself. Um, and I am honored to bring on Max Hall to the show. So Max, thanks so much for joining the show. Dude, absolutely. I'm fired up to be on this thing, man. I'm, I can't believe how many countries you're in the downloads. This is awesome. You're doing a great thing. Um, you know, Brock Bevel reached out to me and kind of connected us. So I'm excited to be on Shane. So thank you for having me. Yo, absolutely, man. And, and I'm stoked to have you. And, and I, I want to give a shout out to Brock as well. Brock was on the show. If you guys haven't heard that episode, Brock was a phenomenal guest. Um, love connecting with him. But yes, like Max just said, he connected us. And I love that. I love the connections from this is one of my favorite things. Max is on the podcast is learning from people and then like connection random connections through other people like i would have never known that brock was connected to you i was like whoa dude this is crazy so it's just kind of yeah. cool how that all works um everybody's kind of intertwined it's a smaller world than you think it is when you really dial it down so it's kind of it's kind of crazy um so max what's funny is i, I said I'd, I'd say a funny story so uh, yeah when i was on my mission here's here's my thing i was on a mission for my church I, I served in brazil for two years for my my church mission but here's the funny thing i've always hated byu i'm a boise state and a ohio state guy <laughs> Hated BYU my entire life. Never been a BYU fan. But when I was on my mission, it was 2008 to 2010. And a couple of my companions had actually gone to BYU during that like time frame right before uh, that, that, that two-year window. And your name was always coming up. Always coming up about some big plays and just everything. Everybody knew who you were. And what's funny is I was like, dude, it's BYU. Nobody cares. Like, no one cares. I'm like, oh, everybody cares. So we always had these like fun discussions and your name was always coming up because it was the quarterback at that time uh the big name at that time and what's funny is now you flash forward what it's been almost 14 years since then and here i am talking to you which is hilarious so let's rewind the clock though max going back in time before byu i want to know about your you know your upbringing and then you know what kind of got you into the sports world in the first place do you come from a family I, well i know that but i want you to explain to the to the the audience maybe if they don't know how the family ties kind of come into that and the sports influence that you had in your life well, my goal is is to turn you into a fan today, I guess, then, Shane. You know yeah, what I'm no, I, I am like, now. I love I'm it. I love that the name was being thrown around. I've always been a Boise State fan, but it's funny because I grew up not liking BYU either. 
<laughs> I grew up a big time Arizona State fan. And wow. um, I do come from a very athletic family, you know, starting with my grandpa, played at ASU. He has his jersey retired in the stadium, played for the Chicago Bears. Um, my uncle Danny White played at ASU, has his jersey retired, went on to play for the Dallas Cowboys. Go and Cowboys. then uh, multiple uncles and cousins. And, and we were just a big time sports family, right? And my dad included. My dad was a very good basketball player, very good football player. And I learned a lot from my dad growing up because he was always coaching me or training me or, you know, I was I was always wanting to play him in one on one or to go out and throw. And so to his credit, he was always there for me um, and, and taught me a lot of what I know about sports, about hard work, about taking pride in what you do, given everything you got, being a good teammate. Um, how to bust somebody up. He taught me how to talk trash. I mean, everything, you know what I mean? Like my dad is awesome. Um, but he did teach me how to do it the right way. And so growing up, I was a big basketball player. I thought I was going to go to ASU to play basketball. Uh, and then going into my junior year of high school, I started getting all these calls from college coaches. And, and it was so funny. Here's a funny story. Um, coach Flugrad, he was uh, Robin Flugrad. He was the running back coach at Washington State at the time, called me up. And I remember I'm walking through campus. I answer the phone. Hey, Max, this is coach. You know, goes on a little bit. We want to offer you a full ride scholarship to Washington State, play football. And I paused and I'm like, OK, cool. What does that mean? Like, like I had no idea what a scholarship offer was. You know what I'm saying? It was the first time I'd ever talked to a college coach, called my dad, told him what happened. He's like, dude, call that coach back right now. And, you know, told, he told me what to say to him. But. Um, I ended up starting to get scholarship offers and more recognition in football. So I guess I could throw a football better than I could shoot a basketball. So um, that's kind of the route I took. And, you know, I played at Mountain View High School in Mesa, Arizona here. At the time, we were the powerhouse of Arizona. In the last, you know, in a 10-year span, I think we run five or six state championships at the time. So um, I was lucky enough to get one of them my junior year. And um, had a very good experience playing high school football, but man, we had a tough coach. I mean, we're talking pink bellies, towel fighting, you know, any, any of the, uh, abuse that you could get in football, we were getting, but it made us tough, man. And taught me some good lessons and taught me some things that I shouldn't do now that I'm a coach, um, going forward. So that's kind of my background growing up and through high school with sports. You know, that's interesting. You mentioned that uh, the, the coaching style, obviously the coach was successful. It sounds like at the school that you yeah. were at, but um, I think nowadays, Max, it's interesting, you know, even from when I was in high school, I graduated in 2006 from high school and just the, the, the difference in coaching styles now and what they're allowed to say and what they're not allowed to say, maybe just, I don't know. It's just a little different. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it, I, I sound like my dad. Oh, in our day, our coach would have <laughs> picked our ass, you know, like all those yeah. types of things. But um I do kind of, uh, that's what I sound like, but I would like to ask you, you know, while it might've been a different coaching style, a little harder coaching style back then, what would you say from your coach in high school uh, was the biggest lesson that you learned that you took away from the high school level uh, during your time playing for him? Well, the coach that was there my freshman and senior year was big time old school and tough. I mean, I remember my freshman year, I got pulled up to varsity spring ball in the spring and every once in a while I would get a rep. And I remember I went in, I was under center. It was like a buck sweep to the right. And based on the front that we saw, the center needed to pull outside for the sweep. Well, I'm, I didn't know that. I didn't know the center was pulling. So I fumbled the snap and it goes down and the coach is like, are you kidding me? Blah, blah, blah. Pink belly. So I had four guys hold me down. And then another guy come up, he spit in the palm of his hand and slapped me on the stomach as hard as he could three times, right? That was my punishment. So they call it a pink belly because your belly's all pink afterwards and you got handprints, right? And it was just normal. That's just kind of like what happened. And I learned that I can't fumble the snap. Otherwise, I'm going to get a pink belly, right? So it's a little bit, you know, and the coach was borderline abusive, but he made us tough, man, like really tough. So the difference, like from then and now is that you can't do that. Like there's, 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 everybody's got a camera and a phone and um, it, it's abuse now. And so the, the biggest thing that I took away, I, I got a new coach my junior year and um, Tom Joseph. And so he had a very different philosophy. He was still tough, but I respected him more. And so what, as a coach now, I want the kids to respect me. 
I want them to run through a wall for me, but not because they fear me, but because they love me and they know that I love them. And I'm putting in as much work because I want them to be successful. And, you know, with my background in addiction and things that I've been through and in my playing days, I have a lot of credibility in mentoring these kids. And so they tend to listen to me. Um, so that, that's kind of the biggest thing that I try to do is I want the I want my coaching style to come from a place of love, not a place of fear. I love that. I, I absolutely love that. And I fully agree with that. If the, the players will like I love that you said run through a wall for me, but not because they fear me because they love me and they know that I love them. I think that's a huge yeah. quote to take out of this one. So if you're listening to this and you're a coach, which I know there are quite a few of you out there, um, take note on that because I think that's a huge, huge piece. There's a lot of great coaches out there, but I I fully agree with that uh, mentality that you just mentioned right there. Yeah. Now, Max, as, as you're going into the collegiate level of football, um, I would love to hear from your perspective um, the biggest transition, I guess, from the high school game where you were at to then the college game at a big time school. And what, yeah, what was the biggest transition? Was it the speed of the game? Was it learning to be a student athlete? What, what would you say is the biggest transition for you going into the collegiate game? Yeah. I mean, everybody would say it's definitely size and speed. I mean, you know, at Mountain View, I had a couple big linemen. Um, but when I got there, I'm looking at some of these dudes like, holy cow. I'm like, you're a safety. You look like a defensive end. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the dudes were just bigger and faster, but it's kind of funny. I, out of high school, I did go to Arizona State, um, was there for a year. I was the third string guy. I got to travel, just got to learn. Um, went on my mission. When I got back from my mission, uh, I kind of decided I didn't want to go back to Arizona State. And the reason why is because there was a lot of bad things that I was getting into at Arizona State. I mean, it's a big party school. Everybody knows that there's there's lots of opportunity there. Now, I also know anywhere you go, there's going to be opportunity. But the environment at issue was not what I wanted to be in. And it's funny. I had a conversation with my dad and he's like, hey, if you don't want to go down that path, that's OK. You know, let's move on. Let, let, let's take some classes at whatever MCC and let's get you a job and move on. So it, the funny part about it is I was pretty much I thought I was done playing football. And uh, after making that decision, about a week later, I get a call from Paul, Paul Tidwell, who was the recruiting coordinator at BYU. And he said, Max, we heard you're home. We heard you might be, you know, wishy washy on ASU. I want you to know we got a scholarship for you at BYU. So I went up there on a visit and right away I was like, this is where I need to be. As much as I didn't like BYU growing up, you know, this is where I needed to be. This was the environment that I needed to be in. So um, I went and there we go. And here's what's awesome about it. John Beck was the quarterback at BYU at the time. John Beck also played at my same high school, Mountain View. Oh, so I, I know followed that. John Beck at Mountain View and then I followed him at BYU. And what was cool is I had a good relationship with John and I went to him and I said, I just want to learn, man. Anytime you're, you're watching film, you're having a meeting, like, can I be invited? I won't say anything. I'll just sit there and I want to learn. I would watch them in practice. Um, but my first year at BYU, I was on the scout team and I got to go against the first team defense every single day in practice. And it was the best thing I could have done. I got to go. I mean, they were the best defense in the Mountain West at the time. And uh, I got to go against them every day and compete and, and get after them and give them a look. And some practices I was live and they were teeing off on me, you know, but that what allowed me to slow the game down. When I'm going against those guys after, you know, after reps, the game slowed down for me. And then the next year I, I won the starting job. And um, that was crucial for me going forward in my career at BYU. That is awesome, man. And the name Tidwell is that's interesting because I actually work in, in in my current calling in my church, uh, Dave Tidwell, um, and he played for BYU back in the day in in the eighty. He played with Steve Young during that time frame, but he was an offensive lineman. I'm pretty positive uh, that's a relation there because I think the whole family's a Tidwell BYU fam. It kind of runs <laughs> yeah. runs through him. So that's kind of interesting. You mentioned that name too. What a small world. Um, anyway, it's crazy as you're talking. Um, Talk to us about your favorite experience at BYU. Now, during that time, I know that you guys had some big games. You guys were actually a really solid program. That's probably why I hated you guys. Um, <laughs> I just, I really did. I just, there's just something about it. Um, I've never, like, honestly, I'll be, I'll just be straight up right here. Every single time I go to a BYU Boise State football game, as of late, it seems, at BYU, 
anytime I've gone in the last like decade, they've lost. Uh, Boise State's lost. I was there for the Tanner Mangum fourth and 12 Hail Mary, whatever the heck it was. Um, I was there the year before that. Almost got into a fight in the stands with one of the fans there. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm like, how am I almost fighting at, at BYU when when I go to Nevada and I go to all these other games and I go to Clemson, I do all these things. I don't, I don't have any issues there. So I don't know. Um, it just always happens. But anyway, talk to us about your favorite memory at BYU. My favorite memory is anytime we beat Boise state, that would be my favorite memory. Uh, of course it would be. Yeah. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. No, I'm joking. Boise state had a good team when I was there. We just never played them. I think during my years, there's when Boise state won the Fiesta bowl. So, I mean, um, they had some good teams, but, for me at BYU, um, I mean, when, when you talk about just the football aspect of it, yeah, there were some great games that we played in. Um, we had some great games against Utah. My senior year, I threw a pass in overtime to beat them. Um, the first game my senior year, we got to go play in the new Dallas Cowboys Stadium. We beat Oklahoma first game of the year, which was awesome. So as far as playing football, I, there's a ton of memories. But those, there was the Utah game my sophomore year, the Utah game my senior year. And then that Oklahoma game would kind of be my three, I guess, signature wins, if you want to call them that. And we had some good football team. We had good football teams during those years. And I had some dudes, man. You think of guys like, you know, Dennis Pitta, Harvey Unga, Austin Colley, Mike Reed, Matt Allen, uh, Fui Vakapuna. You know what I'm saying? I could go on and on. I had a big old offensive line with Travis Bright and Dallas Reynolds and all these guys that I had. We had a good team. So my job was uh, to – manage it and then make the plays when I needed to. Right. So, but those guys around me made me look really good. So, um, but I, as I look back on it, a lot of, a lot of my favorite things at BYU were off the field. It was my relationships with teammates and coaches. Um, I got to speak at firesides all the time in the youth groups and everywhere I went, people wanted to talk to me and get whatever, get my autograph. That's a cool feeling. And uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story real quick. This is good. When I was a little kid, my favorite NBA player was Kevin Johnson. He played for the Phoenix Suns. And my uncle Danny at the time was the coach for the Arizona Rattlers. So we would go to Arizona Rattler practices. And while we were there, the Suns would be practicing in their practice court at, at the arena. So I would want to go in there. And I remember one day I went in there and they're practicing and there's KJ. And I'm like, I, I just want to say hi to him. I didn't even have anything for him to sign. So I get down on the court. Danny takes me down there. Soon as practice is over, KJ bolts to the locker room. And I'm like, KJ, KJ. I was like the only kid there, me and my cousin. He bolts. And I'm like, man, that sucked. And then here comes Charles Barkley walking up towards me. And he's like, hey, come on, let's go. I'm like, uh, oh. what do you want? He goes, me and you, one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm like, bring it. Let's go. Let's go, Charles. So he sat there for 30 minutes after practice and played one-on-one -on -one with me. Guess who my new favorite player is? Charles Barkley. Of course Dude's it is. Good, right? So now, you know, going forward, I'm the quarterback at BYU. I wanted to be Charles Barkley. I didn't want to be Kevin Johnson. So I really tried to embrace the role and um, embrace the community. And um, they, they gave a lot back to me. So um, some of those memories are some of my favorites. That's actually really cool. And shout out Charles Barkley too, man. That's actually awesome. It's cool to hear how he influenced your, your mindset there too, and how you wanted to be a role model for the others. That's, that is absolutely cool, man. Yeah. Um, who would you say was your, the best player in college, best player you played against? Who was the best player you played against and why? Oh man. Um, there's a lot of them. Um, the, the first things that come to mind is there were two defensive linemen and I can't even remember. Was it Dominic Sue who played for Oklahoma? Was that, Oh, who was it? It was, there was a D lineman for Oklahoma who scared the crap out of me. And I remember, I remember there was one drive going down. We were driving the ball and I talked a little trash. I'm like, Hey, they're tired. Let's go. Let's go. Next play. He trucks two dudes and sacks me. And I'm just like, okay, I'm not talking to you anymore. Right. <laughs> there was another D lineman, um, Jerry Hughes, who played at uh, TCU, who was really good, but dude, I could name off 20 players from DBs to linebackers. Um, we got to play some good teams. We played a lot of PAC 12 teams. And so, um, but man, those two defensive linemen stand out for whatever reason. Oh, I think that's awesome. You yeah. know, it's it's so cool to hear from someone like yourself who played at a high level. Not everybody, even if you go to the collegiate level, like not everybody gets that opportunity to play 
like such good competition. Um, and it's a blessing. You get to play against some really stellar athletes um, from your time competing against and with great athletes, Max, especially at the college level before we get into your, your professional game. What made those athletes stand out more? What was their routine? What, what did they do to, I guess, separate from the pack, if you will, to put themselves a little bit higher up? And, and, you know, now I'm thinking about it now. I'm now I'm thinking of the other team's offense. You know, I got to play against Sam Bradford, Andy Dalton, um, Jake Locker. I mean, there were some other great quarterbacks that I got to go against and uh, watching them play and watching them on film. Uh, I learned a lot from them. But here's the difference. It's in the preparation. Everybody's talented. Every Every quarterback can throw the ball. It's the preparation that sets apart the good from the great players. And if you can be – you know, the best word I can do to describe it is almost addicted to preparation and success. That's when you're going to go to the next level. And for me, you know, I'm I'm 6'1", 6'2". I had an okay arm. You know, I had a decent arm. Um, but I had to be really good with my decision-making, timing, and accuracy. And the only way that I would be good doing that is to have relentless preparation in what I was doing. And I would drive my teammates nuts. I would drive. I'd be like, come on, we're throwing, we're watching film, we're staying after practice, we're doing this. And as I've talked, and I bring that up not to say, yay, look at me, but as I talk to other great, let's just talk about quarterbacks right now, that's what they did. I learned that from John Beck. I learned that from talking with guys like Ty Detmer. I learned that from guys in the NFL that I talked to. And the guys that are willing to prepare and mentally know what they're doing in the game um, were the ones that had the most success. And that can go for any position. Preparation. When I was writing that down while you were talking, that is so huge. I want all the athletes that are listening to this, especially the ones I coach for basketball and so forth. It applies to all sports. Preparation. It applies to all sport or all aspects of life too. If you're in a job, like prepare. Your preparation will set you apart. I love that you you like if you're addicted to the preparation to use that word. Um, that's where the success comes. Like if you're addicted to preparation and success, like that's you got to be able to put the the time in. But what what I think happens, Max, is so many people want to talk about it but when it comes to actually putting the time in to prepare because that's the stuff nobody sees that's not on instagram all the time that's not on the the, the twitter feeds so you don't get the instant gratification for it uh yeah. nobody sees it and so nobody wants to do it and then they realize how hard it is when i tell my basketball players you got to get 500 shots up in the morning they're like oh that sounds great until they're about you know 30 minutes into their workout they've shot 200 shots and they're like oh this is going to mm -hmm. be about an hour to an hour and a half oh oh Oh, every day I got to do this on top of practice on top of this. And on, they start to go down that cycle. But what I think what you said is perfect. Like you've got to almost in a sense, become addicted to it and understand and love the process and realize like that's the stuff that you have to do to be able to set yourself apart from the others. Yeah. Now, and you know, it, oh, it's ahead. funny. I, I talk to my boys all the time. I'm like, Hey, everybody wants to talk about beast mode, man. I'm going to go beast mode in the game. You know what I'm saying? You ain't going to go beast mode in the game unless you know how to be beast mode in the weight room, beast mode in the film room. Beast mode in the morning when you're getting your 500 shots up. You know, there's stories about Kobe Bryant being there at five in the morning. Have you have you heard that? Um, uh, what teammate was it? It was um, he played with him for the Miami Heat, the the center, tall guy. Oh, it's uh, Chris Bosh. Chris Bosh was talking about the Olympics. That? Yeah, the Olympics. Yeah, he's games. like, I'm gonna get up. I'm gonna beat him there. He gets there. Kobe's already drenched in sweat. Already got a workout in. Why do yeah. you think it was great? Right. The will, the will to win will, will only get you so far. The will to prepare is what will make you great and help you win championships. My coach at BYU, Brandon Doman, used to always say, when preparation meets opportunity, that equals success. So if you're prepared for your opportunity, you're going to be successful in whatever you're doing. You got a presentation at your job. You got a big meeting. You got your season coming up. Whatever that is, preparation meets opportunity. That's how you're successful. I love it. Max, as you got into the NFL game, you know, you got to have your stint with the Arizona Cardinals. Obviously, it's like it's hometown. So I want to I understand what it was like from your perspective, though. You know, we always hear about the top draft picks going into the NFL, like the top dogs that are, you know, they have all the limelight. But it's a little different when you're when you're, you know, trying to make your roster spot and you're trying to make sure that, you know, you're doing all the work that you're trying on. You're no longer the top dog. You're kind of coming mm -hmm. in and making your name for yourself, I should say. Um, but you were in Arizona and that's also like, you know, you got the home feel around that, that area. I want to talk about the pressures of the professional game, especially from your perspective. So talk to us about that when you got into the NFL and what that was like, were there additional pressures and 
let's start talking about, you know, what that was like playing in the professional game. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember draft day sitting there and I was getting calls from different teams and, Hey, we're going to take you in the fourth, fourth round goes by. We're going to take you in the fifth, fifth round goes by. So I ended up not getting drafted. Um, I ended up being a free agent and I could decide whether to go. I, it was Cincinnati, um, Tampa Bay or Arizona were kind of the top three. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go back home. I think it'd be cool just to be back home, play for the home team, um, you know, be part of the Cardinals organization. So that's what I did. I showed up. They ended up they did draft a quarterback, John Skelton, and I was four on the depth chart. And uh, I show up to the first mini camp in the spring. And, um, you know, at that point, the odds of me moving my way up on the depth chart were probably pretty slim. So this was the mindset that I had. I said, I'm not going to worry about anything else other than myself and getting better every day. Now, I'm saying that not that I was selfish. I still cared about my teammates, but I'm not going to worry about um, if uh, John Skelton threw a touchdown pass and I'd be like, oh, crap, that makes me look bad. No. Every rep that I was going to take was going to be a perfect rep, whether that was a pass or a run. I was going to make my read. I was going to deliver the ball on time. If it was a run, it was going to be the best damn handoff you've ever seen. I was going to carry out Love my it. like. And guess what? Those plays started adding up. And when I got to the preseason, I got to play in a couple of the preseason games and my opportunity came and I did really well. So um, I remember on cut day, I go in. As I'm walking in, Matt Liner comes walking out of Coach Wiz's office, and he's obviously upset. And I'm like, oh, man, what's going on? So I walk in there. They said, hey, Derek Anderson's our starter. You're our number two. John will be number three. And I'm like, whoa. I was just hoping to stay on as a practice squad guy, right? So um, got to go in at number two, did the same thing to DA. I said, hey, I just want to learn, and, you know, I'm a rookie. I got a lot to learn. Um, well, game five, I think game four or five, we're playing San Diego and probably five minutes before halftime, I see the quarterback coach walking over to me and he's got his headset on and he's listening to it. He goes, okay, Hall, you're in. And it was literally one of those situations where I didn't know where my helmet was like, like seriously, I, 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 I thought there was no way I was going to go into this game unless something, there was an injury or something, but DA was struggling a little bit. And so they said, Hey, let's throw him in. I went in, we scored a few times, we still lost the game, but I transitioned into the starting role. I was the first quarterback since like 1956 to be an undrafted free agent and then end up being the starter that same year. So it was pretty cool. And now, now I'm here, I've made it. I'm the starting quarterback. The next week we play the uh, New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees. They had just won a Super Bowl and um, we go out there and we beat them. And, um, you know, I played good defense played great. And my first NFL start, I got a win. And it was, it was, it was awesome. You know what I mean? In front of the hometown and crowd. And, um, we'll get into what happened in that game and how that transitioned into some of the struggles I had later, but man, it's prime time, dude. I'm looking at guys on the sideline, all, all the Fox announcers and you know what I'm saying? And all the guys down there. And, um, I embraced it. You know, I said, there's no reason to be nervous. No reason to put pressure on myself. I'm a rookie. I'm just going to go in there and do the best I can and enjoy this experience, man. Look, I got Larry Fitzgerald over there. I got Beanie Wells in the backfield. You know, I'm like, got the I got Deuce Latouille on the line. You know, it's just like, and um, I had some dudes around me. But unfortunately, a lot of those guys got hurt. And so I ended up having to play with, I had Larry, but then the running back and the three other receivers were rookies as well. So um, we had to go in there with some rookies and go compete. Um, and we did okay, but, um, you know, I played a few games and then, uh, they put DA back in and then I got back in and then dislocated my shoulder. And then, you know, the story goes from there. My goodness though. It's, it's actually cool. Like, as I'm sitting here, I'm like absorbing what you're saying, you know, I'm trying to absorb it all and like take it in and, and imagine if I were you, the fact that you were able to just embrace it is, it speaks volumes though, too, that you were ready for the spotlight in a sense, like you weren't too nervous where a lot of people could probably shut down. They call them practice all Americans. They shut down when the spotlight's actually on them, but they do great in practice. But you prepared, you prepared, you prepared, you were ready. And then you're like, hey, this is time to go. And I love that you mentioned like the teammates that were around you at the time when you first got in. You know, you're like, okay, we're good. I've got I've got guys that can help me out here. Um, I do want to ask before we get into the what happened, mm -hmm. um, I do want to ask 
the difference between play calls in the NFL as a quarterback compared to like that in college. Are you able to like remember a play that you had to call in the NFL, like in a in a huddle? They always talk about like how sometimes they're like a 15 second play call just to get it out to your teammates compared to where college might just be like a you know pro right z wiggle 328 h swing on two or something like that you know what i mean like just something really quick i don't know can you give us an example maybe of the difference sure like in college uh all the formations were colors and then the plays were numbers so a play could literally be called blue right you know 95 that that was a play call and we didn't really huddle so we would just call out the, the formation they would signal me the play and I would just say, I would go and signal and be like, Hey, 95, 95. That was it. Then you get to the Cardinals and I was in a West coast system. West coast systems can get pretty wordy. And I remember one place um, in particular, and you know, it's funny. This is actually the play that I got knocked out on. So the play was fixed, right? Strong, nasty, Z short, 74 hot, white turn X bison, special flat. That was the play call. And um, I remember calling that play and in that play, the protection was 74 hot, which meant my back was on the right and he was out. We were hot. So I only had five guys in protection. And um, right as I snapped the ball, I'm like, dude, my hot might be there. And I look and the running back had lined up on the wrong side. Remember, I had a rookie running back and I didn't get him on the right side. And so I'm like, oh, shoot. Like, now what do I do? So we're on like the five yard line going in, 10 yard line going in. And um so I was like, well, crap, now what do I do? So I just got out of the pocket, rolled to my left, and I'm getting close to the end zone, and you're right there at that one-yard line, you know? And now it's decision time. Do I lower my head? Do I try to get in? Do I, I can't slide on the one. You know what I'm saying? I felt like I had no choice. So I said, here we go. And I got met by the middle linebacker and the strong safety, and boom, lights went out. Um, it's kind of funny, though. When I came to Larry Fitzgerald had picked me up and he's like kind of shaking me. It's like, hey, hey, you you okay, Max? Like, I'm like, yeah. Like, what happened? He's like, don't worry about it. We scored. And I'm like, yes, I got in. You know what I'm saying? Well, then the next day I'm watching on film. I got hit, ball popped out. I fumbled into the end zone and my left tackle dove on it in the end zone. That's how we scored. So I got I got made fun of a little bit in film the next day, but um you know, that that was a that was a I don't know what you want to call it. It was a big event for me going forward, not only in my NFL football career, but in life. Totally. So you obviously had a concussion there. Um, and for those who remember the the story, if they've been following football, even if they don't know you particularly, like they probably remember that play now that you're describing it and they probably can kind of see what was going on there. Um Talk to us about that, the concussions in football and how that affected you the next couple of games going forward, even if you didn't realize it at the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. So the NFL concussion protocol was not in place yet. Um, so I was knocked out. I was out for 10 seconds or so. I actually have no idea how long I was out, but I remember being out and opening my eyes and it was right before the half. So we go into halftime. And the coaches come to me, they'd be like, hey, man, are you okay?" Now, you got to realize I had just earned the starting job. Okay, so the decision that I made was I can't like be hurt and give this thing back up. I'm here. I'm the guy. I want to stay the guy. So I said, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine. Now, in the second half, I, I was forgetting play calls. I was I was all over the place. But somehow I was able to complete some passes and move the ball. And we ended up winning the game. Wow. I had a severe concussion and, you know, I've had concussions in the past, high school, college, you know, we've all had them minor. This was the first time I'd ever been knocked out. So they decide that I'm okay. And I'm going to play the next week in Seattle. So we go up to Seattle, or let me start back. The, The week of preparation leading into the Seattle game, I was not right. And I think it was very obvious to anybody out there that I wasn't right. I was very like spacey. Like I would get to where I would just be standing there totally zoned out. And the coach would be like, Hey, Max, you're up. Like, what's up? What are you doing? Like, come on, let's go. And I'd be like, Oh, oh, okay. Like I was out of it, dude. And for anybody who's had a bad concussion, you know how you got headaches, you're, you're cloudy, you're spacey. It's just, it's, it's not fun. So I go into Seattle, we get there, it's dumping rain. And um, 
I mean, I threw a bad pick. I'm, I'm like literally asking the running back what the play was after we get to the line of scrimmage. He's like, just hand me the ball. You know what I mean? Just stuff like that. And uh, in the second quarter, I got hit from the backside um, and boom, lights went out again. Second time that I had been out cold in two weeks. So I remember coming to and I kind of stand up and they still just call another play. It was third down. They call another play. We don't get it. Punt. And I go to the sideline and and, um, I'm like, the coach knew like I was out of it. So they put the other quarterback in. They put DA back in. Well, they decide I need to start the next week. So here we go into Tampa Bay. I was knocked out cold again in the second quarter. And they decide I'm going to start versus Tampa Bay. So now I'm going my third game in a row or second game in a row with a bad, two bad concussions. And um, but I felt like I was starting to come out of it a little bit. And I actually played pretty good, except for I threw I went to throw a bang post to my left hand side and the running back and missed his block. So as I'm throwing it, my elbow gets hit. The ball kind of flutters up in the air and they intercept it. And now the coaches decide to pull me, you know, it was like now. So anyway, so this is what we have to understand. I've got a concussion and all the symptoms that go with it. And one of the biggest symptoms that I was experiencing was depression. I was for no reason, just like way down and depressed, like all the time. And now I just officially got yanked. So I am in a bad headspace right now, bad place, depressed. I'm anxious about what's going to happen. You know, I got all the, still the symptoms going on in my head and stuff. And um, so you got to understand here, I'm not in a good place right here going forward. So my gosh, dude. So I'm, that's what I want to like look at is, you know, you're an athlete. You have these additional pressures anyways. This is your livelihood. This is the money you're making. You're, you're in this spot, but now add the, the head injuries to it. And you kind of are in a bad spot though, right? Max, cause you're, you're like, do I play? Um, do I let them know that I can't play? Cause if I don't, if I tell them I'm, I can't play, I'm not going to play. They'll probably cut me. Like they don't want me there if, if I'm going to tell them I can't play. So you're kind of like playing the game is a way to put it in my head. Like you're just playing the game. You're trying to, you know, show the coaches that you're good to go because you got to get the money out there for your family to support your family. Like that's what you got to yep. do. That's your livelihood, and you're and you're putting your health at risk by doing that. And then this happens, the depression yeah. side of things, concussions. This completely affects people. And I don't think the 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 general fan truly understands that. Um, they don't understand what athletes like yourself go through. Just a simple. They think it's just a simple concussion. Oh, he got knocked out because they see the athletes go through this all the time. That it's so common. Oh, he got a concussion. Whatever. It's almost like. Oh, I just rolled my ankle. I'll be good next week. But what they're not seeing is what's happening behind the scenes and how that actually affects you mentally. And so that's why I'm grateful that you shared that. Now, as you went forward, let's talk about where, you know, this depression and this anxiety and and just the additional pressures of football took you into the, I guess, the addiction realm. Because there's a second part of this story and that kind of got you into the, the addiction realm. But talk to us how that kind of transitioned into that. So after they yanked me, I think it was three or four games later, we're playing the St. Louis Rams and uh, DA struggling again. So it had been three or four weeks. I was feeling better. And I remember that week going into Coach Wisenhunt and saying, hey, like, I know I've been out of it. I'm feeling better. Like, don't give up on me. You know, I felt like I was about to be given up on. So I went and had a meeting. I said, hey, don't give up on me. Like, I'm going to get this back. So I had a great week of practice. And so halfway, whatever, at second, third quarter, I can't remember what it was. Um, they put me back in. Well, my second play back in, drop back for a pass, try to step up in the pocket, and I get sacked. As I'm getting sacked, I kind of hit the ground and the ball kind of pops out a little bit. So I reach out with my left hand to grab it, and the middle linebacker dives at my shoulder trying to get the ball, and it dislocated my shoulder. And so I remember kind of getting up on a knee, and my shoulder is out of my shoulder socket and down. So my shoulder was like hanging way down. So I'm like, I'm looking at the sideline just like, hey, like it's out. I need help. So the trainer comes out, yanks my arm down. It pops it back in. And then I remember going to the locker room after that. And that's where mentally I, I broke down. I thought my football career was over. I thought that was it. Like I'm done. And I, I remember I, do, I had tears like I was I was like, I can't believe 
this is happening with the concussion. I've never been injury prone my entire career. I never missed a practice, let alone a game at BYU. And I had my share of bumps and bruises and injuries, but I always played. This was the first injury I've ever had to where I'm like, I'm out. Like, and I, I was not in a good place. Well, I go see the doctor, whatever. Guess the guess what the doctor gives me? He goes, here, blah, blah, blah. Here's your bottle of Percocet. I'm like, sweet, man. 30-day supply. Now, going back, Shane, you got to realize something. The first time I had ever tried opiates was in high school. It was uh, late in my senior year in the spring, and we were at a party or whatever, and it was being handed around. And at the time, I'm like, it's a pill. Not that big of a deal. It's not, it's not like this isn't heroin. It's not cocaine. It's a pill. Whatever. I took it, made me feel good, whatever. But it wasn't like, oh, I need more than that. It was just like something on the weekend that was cool. Well, now let's go back forward. Mm-hmm. I remembered how those pills made me feel. And so I started taking them and it numbed my emotions. It, it numbed my pain, physical and mental. And it was great for me at the time. But I took a 30 day supply of Percocet in about two and a half, three days. Okay. Wow. So once that's gone, I'm like, crap. So guess what I do? I call up my old buddy from high school. I'm like, hey, can you still get these pills? He's like, yeah, you want them? So then I started buying Oxy. And Oxycontin is is a pure form of of the Oxy, whereas Percocet has some Tylenol in it or whatever. So this was pure oxycodone, basically synthetic heroin. And um, then I then I realized you could break it down and snort it. I realized you could break it down and shoot it to get faster and more rush from the high. So within two months, I'm a full blown opiate addict after that. And it just got worse and worse and worse as time went on. And um, going into the next season, it was the lockout season, if you remember that. So I wasn't around any coaches, anybody that could kind of like see what was going on. We go to camp and um, oddly enough, I actually do well in the preseason, but against the um, going into the last preseason game in a practice, I fell, put my hand out to brace my fall and dislocate my shoulder again, and then had surgery soon thereafter. And, um, and that was it for me. Like that, that I, I went down a very, very dark hole, um, uh, which eventually turned into heroin, which turned into cocaine, um, I mean, I was I was full blown addict at that point. So it's it's interesting. I, I what I'm hearing from this, like it just takes it doesn't take much, I should say, to to become addicted. You might even think like because you even mentioned, oh, the only time was in high school and it was the first time you flash forward. And it was just a small, you know, your trainer said, here's this. And within a couple of days, boom, you're kind of like realizing the effects that it can have on you. And then boom, all of a sudden within a month, you're addicted to opioids now. It stems into other things. I want people to understand that that's how quickly that can happen if you make that decision. Um, but you were also like some people would say, Max, why did you even do that in the first place? So you've heard from people don't do drugs your whole life. You've, you've heard that you can become addicted to these things. Maybe it's because like you, maybe you felt like you couldn't be like, but, but talk to us about that. Like, why did you decide to do it? Was it just to numb the pain? Was it to get away from your headspace? Like, even though you'd been taught all these things your whole life. I guess what where were you to where you you made that decision to do that that initial decision to do it like um people might ask like why would you do that because I want people to understand that human beings you might have the strongest foundation with your family whatever it may be with your faith whatever it may be there you've been taught your whole life not to do drugs whatever but sometimes people are in a mental state and that's why I want you to kind of elaborate on that a little bit to where like you you took it yeah you know there there there's a saying that some people will say like in sports and I'll use football just because I played football is that football has to be something you do, not who you are. Okay. That is complete bull crap because guess what? The amount of football and fame and notoriety that I got, it became part of who I was. I don't care who you are. It becomes part of you. And it was a big part of me. I loved football. I was passionate about it. I thought I was going to play football for a long time in the NFL. I was good enough to, But then these events happen and the injuries and all that. And I get to the point where I believe that football is over. And it was such a big part of who I was for such a long time. I didn't know how to cope with that. So on top of that, I'm got lingering symptoms from concussion. I'm depressed. I'm physically hurt. 
And it gave me every reason to just say, you know what, F it. I'm going to take these pills because they make me feel better. And I don't know how to deal with football being over. I, I didn't know what to do. Like it was, it was a big part of who I was. And so um, it was the easy way out and I took it. And, um, you know, going from there um, for the next five years, I, I mean, it's a shitty way to, sorry, it's a shitty way to learn your life, live your life. When the first thing you do when you wake up is think about drugs and either taking it or finding it. And most of my day consisted of finding more. And I would take it right before I go to bed. And then the next day I'd do it all over again, you know, and that that's a really crappy way to live your life. And I just, a huge ball and chain that sucked me down and I wanted to keep my head down. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to, I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to talk to God. I didn't want to do any of that stuff. I wanted to be in my little dark corner and have my little best friend here with my opiates and just not have to deal with life because I didn't know how to going forward. And that right or wrong, that was where my headspace was at. And then once you get addicted, especially to opiates, it's physically addicting. Like if you try to stop, you're going to get really, you're going to get dope sick. And if you've never been dope sick before, I don't wish it on you. Imagine the worst flu you've ever had times it by 10. Like it is really, really bad. So every time I would try to stop, I'd make it maybe a day or two into the withdrawal and be like, bump this, like I'm out. I'm going to go find more. I don't care what the consequences are. That's how big of a hold it had on me for about five years. That is so interesting. You brought that up. I want people to understand this. You might not, you know, people may not have done drugs, right? And they don't understand, but even quitting is super, super hard when your body has become addicted to that substance. They've been, it's become so used to having that substance in it. You get sick It physically and people have died by cutting it off cold Turkey. That's, I know a friend, my best friend growing up, he ended up in prison for his entire twenties because opioids got a hold of him. Uh, and, and, and he told me about that same concept. He's like, man, I tried to stop over and over and over, but like, every time I do, I get super sick to the point where I couldn't go to work. I couldn't function. So I was like, dude, I might as well just take this so I can feel right. So I can go to work and I can make a living. Then he ends up going to find more similar to what you're saying. He ends up robbing a store, a pharmacy. He's arrested. Mm -hmm. He ends up in prison and his addiction kept him in that prison cycle for his whole entire 20. So, um, it's, it's, it's something that I just wish people had a little bit more understanding of. I'm not saying, Hey, go out and do drugs to figure it out. But listening to your story can help with that. Have a a little bit better understanding of what an addict is actually going through. So Max, you're obviously going through those struggles. You're, you're addicted. You're, you're living that life. I'm, I'm grateful that you mentioned, you know, you didn't want to pray. You didn't want to go to church. You were hiding this for people. You didn't want to talk to people. You just wanted to be in your own. And that's a, that's a very dark, scary place to be. But when, what was, I guess, rock bottom for you to where you were like, okay, it's time to get help. Talk to us about that point. You know, and and people will sometimes say, well, why didn't you just go get help? I was a public figure. If I go to rehab, I felt like that was going to ruin my reputation. It was going to ruin any chance I had of maybe being a coach down the line or whatever. And so as my family kind of started realizing what the heck was going on and my, my wife and my parents. And so I, I convinced them because when you're an addict, you're extremely manipulative. You, you get what you want one way or the other, and you will go to whatever length. And so we try, I convinced them, Hey, I need to keep this a secret and try to do it on my own, but I just couldn't. So rock bottom for me was, you know, there was a Saturday morning where I had, I had scored some pills and about an eight ball of cocaine and decided to do it all. So, um, and, you know, and this is, this is, you know, in between all this, I don't want to go into this a lot, but I ended up failing an NFL drug test. And so I went and saw a doctor and that doctor put me on Suboxone and Suboxone is buprenorphine. It is an opioid. It fills your opiate receptors so that you don't have withdrawal. You get a little buzz from it, but it just keeps you so you can function. And so I would be on that for a while and be able to do good. But the thing about it is, If you stop taking the Suboxone, you have to wait three days and you'll go through some withdrawal, but then I can use again. So it would, this drug, all it did for me was when I couldn't find drugs, it allowed me to not be in withdrawal. And then as soon as I could find more drugs, I'd get off of it and go use drugs again. So it was a cycle for years, but like I went back to BYU and took some school and helped coach there. I was on Suboxone and did well. 
Um, I went up to Canada and played for a few years, did well. And then my second year in Canada, we got a new coach, brought in a new QB. They ended up letting me go. So now I'm pissed about being let go from Canada. I come back down to AZ. I go to my guy. I score my stuff. I take almost an eight ball of cocaine, probably at least three-fourths of it, and about 250 milligrams of Oxycontin. That's what I had in my system at the time. And I, I don't really remember a lot of what happened, but apparently I, well, I went into a Best Buy and I'm, I'm wandering around the store, but I'm like opening cases, like taking headphones out of a case and putting them on and just like acting like an idiot. Like, so eventually the store, the workers there caught on and they're like, Hey man, like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, hey, no problem. Like, I'll pay for all this stuff. Just, you know, here's my credit card. And they go, no, I don't think so. So they called the cops. Cops showed up, found paraphernalia and the little bit of the cocaine that I had left and arrested me. And I pleaded with the cops. I said, look, I'll pay for it. You don't need to arrest me. Like, and they were like, "Uh uh-uh. So I remember sitting in the back of the cop car, handcuffed. And I completely, completely lost it. You know, my life is now officially over. Okay. This is going to come out. Everybody's going to know. And in my mind, that's it. I just lost my family. I just lost any relationships with friends or coaches or anybody I associated with. No one's going to want anything to do with me anymore. And that was my rock bottom. So I get arrested Saturday morning. I didn't even tell my wife till Monday night because Monday was a holiday. I told my wife and dad what had happened. And sure enough, Tuesday morning when it hit the press, you know, that's when my face was on every newspaper on Twitter. Boom. There it was. And so uh, that was my rock bottom. Looking back on it, um, I say that maybe it was a blessing. Maybe it was a blessing because now that my secret was out, I had no reason to hide. And it, it gave me the opportunity to finally say, okay, I need some help. No. And I think it's awesome that you're in the space where you can consider that a blessing, not a burden or a curse. Um, I, I just, I feel for you as you're talking about, I'm like, man, and knowing you more just in this last 50 minutes of a conversation is like, I'm like learning your history of football and, and knowing you as a person. Like I, I feel for you. That's what, that's the whole point of this show, you know, is to like learn more about the, the individual. Cause then, you know, Max, it's weird. And I'm sure you experienced like when your name's out in the tabloids and it's just popping up, people have their gut reactions to this. Like, oh, what a failure and all this stuff. And like, you got all these people, they don't know what was going on. So like, I feel for you as you're talking. I'm like, gosh, I'm like sitting here as you're talking about the cop car. And I'm like, I can totally like understand the feelings that you're going through. Like life is over. You think it's over. Yeah. Um, but I would like to ask you, you know, so that maybe somebody who's struggling with this type of a, a thing that might be small right now, but could easily within a year or two years, whatever could blow up to be in, in a situation where you were in, I don't know, but like if they're struggling with it and they want to get help, but might not want to have to be arrested um, and go through that. You know, I, like I told you, my friend growing up, my best friend growing up, same situation. He told me straight up, he goes that, that day that he robbed that pharmacy could have been completely avoided had he had just gotten help. Um, yeah. And he didn't. And, and he, he doesn't know why he did it. He wasn't in the right mental space because he was obviously influenced with, with the drugs that he was on robs a pharmacy. That was the end of his twenties. Like, from the time he was 18 to the time he was 30, he was in and out of the prison system. So talk to us about what, what those kids can do or those, those adults can do that are going through this so that they don't end up having to get to that point of being in a cop car before they, they go and get help. Maybe yeah. they don't want their name out there, but is there something, some sort of advice you could give them at this point of where to find help or where to turn to? Well, you know, addiction doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care how much money you make what house you live in, what you do, which profession is, it doesn't matter. Addiction will take you to three places. You're either going to end up in prison, in a facility, or dead. Those are your choices once you enter addiction. And when I say facility, I mean like getting help, rehab. Um, I was one of the lucky ones that was able to get help. But it's hard. Nobody wants to admit that they have a problem. Nobody wants to deal with maybe the shame and the guilt that comes with it the embarrassment that comes from it. Um, But this is what I would say. Addiction is becoming less and less taboo. 
It's the whole reason why I agreed and started my podcast that we have, Agents of Recovery. It's the reason why I want to come on with you, Shane, and talk and tell my story and talk about it on this podcast and be completely open and honest about it. Because there are more people out there than we realize that are suffering from addiction. And the deaths are crazy. Now with fentanyl and all this stuff you got, you got ODs and people and high school kids dying left and right from this stuff. So if you're even dabbling in it, or maybe you're a full-blown addict right now, you don't have a lot of choices on where you want your life to go. So you need to make that choice. Are you going to end up in a facility or are you going to lose your 20s in prison? Or are you going to end up OD'd and dead because you got a bad fentanyl pill or whatever? Like that's where it goes. And if that's where you want your life to go, then I don't know what to tell you. But I decided that I needed to fight eventually. I wasn't going to let this define who I was. I wasn't going to let this ruin my life. I was going to fight. So for those going through it, maybe you're dabbling. I dabbled in it. I never thought I, did you ever, I never thought my life I'd be a drug addict. Are you kidding me? I had some of the highest of highs, man, playing football, being in the spotlight. I came from a great family. I was a good member of the church and my faith, like, me, a drug addict? Are you kidding me? It can happen to anybody. And I was about as full blown as you can get. And so is that where you want to go? That's where it's going to take you. And you think that this drug is your best friend and it helps you and you got to have it and you can. Okay. That thing is going to take a hold of you. Addiction is so evil. It is just evil and it takes you to dark places. So get some help. People are more understanding now than they've ever been. I mean, tell me one person, go go ask them, and I bet you every person you talk to has either experienced addiction or know somebody who's experienced addiction. And I think people applaud you for getting help. There's no shame in that anymore. And if you're not a full-blown guy, maybe you don't need to go to rehab. Go see a counselor. Go to a detox center. Find somebody that you can talk to. You got to develop a team around you to help you. And... Um, once I decided that I was going to do that, my life took a 180 turn and I, and I started heading in the other direction and repairing my life. So my advice is get some help, find somebody you can talk to and be open about it. Otherwise it's going to destroy you. I love it. I, I love that you mentioned that you got, there's three destinations basically for you. So make a decision and, and go with it. Um, I say the same thing about finances. I mean, it's the same concept with a lot of things. I mean, you got, if you're making this much money, this is where you're going to go if you don't understand how to save or do this or this and this and like make a decision on what you're going to do and stop doing this. So like in the sense of addiction, same concept, I, you got to make a decision. And I think that's awesome. I commend you for making that decision and, and still being able to fight this and, and go through and, and completely turning your life around. Not everybody does. And so that's the whole point. We got to get your story out there. Uh, Max, where can people, you know, find you or hear more from you. You mentioned your podcast. Is there any social media outlets or, you know, the podcast itself, where can they find that um, where they can hear from you and, and learn from you or maybe those around you um, who are going through these types of struggles? Yeah. So I'm on, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and the handle is the same. It's MXRD um, at whatever. Um, and uh, I, I'm not like way active on social media, but, but I'll, I'll post podcast or I'll post stuff and, um, and do that. But, but the, the podcast that we have is called agents of recovery, no longer victims of addiction. Um, you can find it on pretty much anywhere where you can find podcasts. You can find our ours. Um, I know it's on iTunes and, and all those other things. So um, it is a great podcast. If you're out there listening to this, you know, somebody going through addiction, you're going through addiction. Shoot. If you just want some help with motivation in life or you don't like where you're at in life, you feel like you're in a rut, you're stuck, you hate your job, you you fight with your spouse all the time, whatever. There's lots of things on this podcast. I mean, addiction is obviously brought up, but we talk about leadership. We talk about finding your why. We talk about a, a whole range of things. And I have people who aren't addicts come up to me all the time saying, hey, I listened to your podcast. It's great. When does the next one come out? So I'd encourage you to go listen to it. Um, and, uh, again, agents of recovery and we're, we're, we're just trying to be open and raw and real and, and shed light on addiction because we've all been through it and we need to help those that need the help to, to get them through it. I love it. I'll put that here in the description, the, sorry, the description here, agents of recovery, make sure they know where to find it. So it'll link it here in the description. Um, and I'll also put your social media handles down here as well. As we wrap it up, Max, 
What's the biggest life lesson that sports taught you, whether it be through, you know, the, the, the good or the bad, what was the biggest life lesson you've learned through your football career, whether it's a player, it's your injuries, it's your addiction, or it's your coaching career. Just tell me what your biggest life lesson was in football so far. My, this is the lesson I learned in sports and in life. You're going to get knocked on your ass. You just are. I don't care who you are. Something is going to happen to you. And are, we are going to be, I don't want to say judge, but it's how you respond that matters, right? When you get sacked, get up and get for the get to the next play. If life throws you a curveball, figure out a way that you can respond and overcome that adversity. I've had to learn how to do that in my life. I could do it well in football. I had to learn how to do it in real life situations to get back up and move forward. So that, that would be the, the main lesson, I think, in all my triumphs and struggles and everything is that it's all about the next play. So if you're making mistakes, whatever, let's get up, let's reassess, and uh, let's move forward in the right direction. I love it, man. Max Hall, ladies and gentlemen, this has been an amazing conversation. I appreciate your time, brother, and just your openness and willingness to, to share with the audience. And for all those listening, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. Uh, this has been fantastic. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Make sure you follow him. And uh, you guys know the drill. We'll be coming to you guys next week with another interview.